statistics and facts about persecution are a bit surrealistic to us. We're removed from the ugliness, the strength, the power of these stories because we live in a, a land where, look at us, we're gathering here, you have no fear. We think of persecution as the minor scorn we receive from people of a different religious or political perspective. And to be honest, even as a pastor, preaching on the subject would not be a first choice. But when we're studying through Scripture, you come to it. In fact, the concept of persecution is so significant in the Bible, we probably should have it in our doctrinal statement. Things that are given less attention find their way into our statement of beliefs. But how do we do that in a country where we really don't face persecution? And how do we wrestle with a story like the one we're going to look at today, the second letter in the book of Revelation to the church at Smyrna, the suffering church? I want to ask you a question as we get started. Do you think the fact that we live in a place of religious liberty and without religious persecution is a blessing? I'm going to ask you that question again when we're done. But now let's look to this letter. It's Revelation chapter 2. What we are going to see as we work through these seven letters is a four-part pattern. It begins with a revelation of Jesus Christ. We are, with each letter, getting a different perspective of the glorified Jesus Christ. It would be like going to an art gallery, and in the middle of the room was this magnificent piece of artwork, and as you walked around it, every time you got another view, it gave you a, a deeper appreciation of the majesty and glory of that artwork. That's what these letters are going to do. By the time we're done, we'll have walked around this image of this glorified, majestic, risen Christ who has ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. And we're going to see him in his majesty. Then there's an observation that's made about the church. In most cases, it's an affirmation, like last week. Ephesus, you contend for truth. Then it moves to an exhortation, and in most cases, it's a criticism. I hold this against you. In Ephesus' case, they were so into their doctrinal accuracy that they lost all passion, all love. And then an inspiration to overcome, to hear the words of God, and to enter into their eternal reward or blessing. Now, many have looked at Revelation as this puzzle that, if unlocked properly, will help us predict when Jesus returns. And that's the worst way to look at any prophecy in Scripture. In fact, Jesus said of the day and hour of Jesus' return, no one knows, not even Jesus knows. And in that way of looking at it, many have taught that these seven letters represent seven periods of history related to the church age. That may be how you've come to see it. And the assumption is that we're in the final era, which is the seventh letter, the church at Laodicea, and that's the lukewarm church. That's the church that's privileged and uh, suffers very little, and consequently, they're lukewarm, and they, they make Jesus sick. And many would say that's the era of the church now. Well, are there churches like that? Yeah. But I want to tell you, that is not true of the universal church of Jesus. That's true of the Western church. But the churches in sub-Sahara Africa where people are dying for their faith are not lukewarm. Here's the reality. All seven of those churches existed at the time of the writing. And in some form or another, all seven of these churches exist today. 
and represent for all of us common things that we struggle with. And out of this, we're gonna end up with seven core values that Jesus says, this is what's really true of my people at all times and in all places. And so when we come to the church at Smyrna, let's look at it that way. We're gonna begin reading at verse eight, just three verses. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, let's walk through this and see what we can pull out of it today. The first thing we come to is this revelation of Jesus. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came back to life again. What a perfect glimpse of the glorified Christ for a church that is facing persecution and martyrdom like Smyrna. Think about it. Jesus is reminding them there are other authorities in this world, but they are not ultimately in charge. I am still on my throne. And while they are having say in your life right now for a short time, I'm gonna have the last say. I'm the first and I'm the last. And remember, I died and I came to life again. And that means that even if you end up in this season of trial paying the ultimate cost, that is not the end of the story. And because I live, you also will live. Uh, that's, that's it right there. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> So we have the revelation of Jesus, then we move to the observation. And he talks about the nature of their suffering in three ways. I know your afflictions and your poverty and your slander. Let's take some time and really get to know Smyrna and the Christians there. Remember, seven churches are receiving this letter that is traveling through them in the order of the postal route from Ephesus now to Smyrna. Smyrna is a coastal city. It's a beautiful, wealthy city. It has been faithful to Rome for several centuries. It had been destroyed some centuries ago and then rebuilt with all of Rome's resources and to display Rome's glory. And so this was a planned city, beautifully built. It displayed all of the grand architecture and the wealth of the Roman Empire. It was also the capital for the emperor cult throughout the whole region of Asia. It was the first to have a temple specifically dedicated to emperor worship. You, you, you know what we're talking about from last week. Rome was not a monotheistic culture. They welcomed other religions, but in order to hold them all together, they developed a concept of a supreme loyalty to the emperor, not just as a man and a ruler, but as a god. And so once a year, a Roman citizen and citizens of Smyrna needed to show up at the temple, offer incense, and declare Caesar is Lord. And in saying that, what they're saying is Caesar is the, 
the supreme deity that we worship above all other deities. And of course, the Christians couldn't say that. Because of this, the people were suffering affliction and even poverty because if you didn't make that declaration to emperor as your supreme lord, then you didn't get a job. You were ostracized and pushed out of your culture. You were marginalized. And so they were living in poverty even in the midst of great wealth around them. When it talks about the slander that they're victims of, Jesus speaks about a synagogue, a group of Jews. Then he says that they are not truly Jews. And he refers to the synagogue as a synagogue of Satan. Really strong words. Let me share with you what I think that's about. You see, the Jewish people had been accepted broadly in the Roman Empire. Synagogues were very common in in many of the cities. Rome had a habit of accepting other deities from other cultures into their religious system. And believe it or not, that included Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, Rome acknowledged within their plethora of gods. And so generally, Jewish culture was seen as an ancient faith and was accepted. However, around 70 AD, 20 years before this letter is written, there was a revolt in Jerusalem. There was a complete destruction of the city. All the Jews were dispersed. As Jesus had predicted 40 years earlier, talking of the temple, not one stone will be left upon another. That was fulfilled 40 years after Jesus. The Jewish religion, as it was taught in the Bible, ended that day. The sacrificial system. It's why Jewish people will say every Passover next year in Jerusalem because they long to see that reestablished. And so while the Jews are accepted, they're walking on eggshells. And because Christians are causing such trouble, it's important that they marginalize themselves from the Christians. Across the Roman Empire, here were the things that were commonly shared about Christians. First of all, they were called atheists because they didn't worship the emperor. They didn't worship the other guys, so they were thought of as godless. They were called cannibals, eating a body and drinking blood. Think about that, communion. And there was rumor that we were incestuous because we married brothers and sisters. Think about it. The Jewish synagogue in Smyrna had significantly contributed to that. And that's why Jesus says of them, because you have denied me as your Messiah and because you are now persecuting, slandering my people. You you call yourself Jews, but you're not. Add to that the fact that the Judaizers, who were that first heresy within Christianity that said it's not enough to just accept Jesus, you have to become Jewish, and were causing all sorts of trouble across all of Asia for Christians, insisting that Greek men be circumcised and that everyone fall under the Old Testament law. Paul saw this as such an evil attack against the truth of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone that he had really strong words to say about it. In fact, most of his letters in the New Testament target Judaizers directly. At one point, referring to their desire that Greek men be circumcised, he says, I wish those Judaizers would go all the way and castrate themselves. 
I, I didn't say that. Paul said that. It's in the Bible. Check it out. And the Judaizers had found refuge in the synagogue, contributing to that slander. So the Christians are getting hit from all sides. And they're suffering greatly as a result of it. But here's the thing I want you to understand. While suffering is extreme in Smyrna, here's the thing, it is not an anomaly. Persecution is actually at this time a norm across the whole world where Christianity is being taught. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Let me just show you some of the places where Jesus makes it a point to prepare his followers for the persecution that would come. Luke 21, you will be dragged into synagogues and prisons and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. John 16, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith for you will be expelled from the synagogues. And the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service to God. If there is any place where we see the words of Jesus fulfilled so clearly, it's in this city at this time with these Christians. But you need to understand, it is so common for the early church that Paul, when he writes to Timothy, who by the way is a pastor in Asia, says this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Look how encompassing that is. Everyone will. That was the context in which Christianity emerged and blossomed. Jesus goes on, and now he's got a word of exhortation. And for the Christians at Smyrna, there is no criticism. He holds nothing against them, but he does not have good news for them. He says, it's going to get worse. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. By the way, that 10 days is a symbolic term. It goes all the way back to Daniel and his fellow young men being tested for 10 days in prison uh, in Babylon. And it refers to a season of time. Much of the writing in Revelation is, is coded. It's symbolic because it's being written to people who are under persecution. He speaks directly about things they're experiencing, but he uses metaphor, allegory. He uses code words. And in the same way here, these 10 days speak of a season where they will face even greater persecution, imprisonment. And then he says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So here's the great news for Smyrna. It's going to get worse. And he encourages them, you're going to need to be faithful even to death. And that's exactly what is going to take place. Do you know that in the 2,000 years since Jesus Christ, there has never been a time when Christians were not suffering and being martyred somewhere in the world. Just to give you a few snapshots, in A.D. 64, Rome burns. Nero is likely behind it, but he blames those Christians, those pagans, those cannibals. 
Thousands of them are slaughtered in the most horrific of ways. They are sewn into animal skins and fed to wild animals for the entertainment of the public. They're crucified by the thousands. And others are used as human tortures to light Nero's garden parties. By the way, it was likely during Nero's persecution that St. Peter and Paul were arrested and martyred for their faith. In Smyrna, the prediction that we've read comes to fulfillment around 153 A.D. when Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was among many as the emperor cult reaches a fever pitch who are burned to death because of their faith. Let me summarize for you. Over the last 2,000 years, did you know that 70 million Christians have been put to death for their faith in Christ? Did you know that in the last 10 years, almost a million people have been put to death for their faith in Christ? And every month currently, 322 Christians are killed, 214 churches or Christian buildings are destroyed, and 772 acts of violence are witnessed towards Christians somewhere in the world. Here's the reality. Persecution as Jesus promised, would not be the exception, but has actually been the norm throughout all of history. And so we have to ask ourselves as we look at this, and I know this is a hard subject, but we have to look at our own lives and realize how how removed we are from it. Think about how uncomfortable you are as as I talk about this. This is not a feel good Sunday. We have to wrestle with the implications of that. And we need to ask ourselves, how would I, how should I respond to persecution? The the truth is, it's theoretical for us. Ask yourself, how often does your fear of simple embarrassment or ridicule or anger from people cause you to not share Christ? I'm always amazed at how many of my Christian friends are willing to get somebody mad by posting their political point of view on Facebook. You have no fear of that, but you won't share Jesus. You won't share his love. Why? I think in your heart you know. And so let me ask you again, do you think being in a land where we are not facing persecution is a blessing? Is it something we've earned? Or are we somehow worse off for it? How do we respond to persecution? How would we respond to persecution? How does that play into how we live our lives even now that we are not really in that? Well, Jesus gives us the path to it. Here it is, it's Matthew 5. Let's say it together. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. What is our default response to facing persecution or insult? What what do we pray to God? Get me out of here. Yeah, we assume that that's what God wants because that's what we want. And of course, there are times when God miraculously delivers us from harm. We all love those stories. But here's the thing I think you need to understand. Historically, 
that is always the exception. John, for instance, was the exception. But for 11 other apostles, that was not God's answer. And for Jesus himself, that was not God's answer. When he cried, Lord, if this cup can be removed from me, that's my choice, but not my will, yours be done. You see, Jesus helps us understand this main point. Persecution is not the problem. Persecution is actually a blessing. And that's why we ought to rejoice and be glad in it and not fear it. I got thinking about this and the video we showed at the beginning of the sermon inspired me to think about ways that persecution actually blesses the world and blesses Christians. And five come to mind. I want to run through them as we wrap up today. The first thing is that, to me, persecution purges the church. Think about this. Smyrna, the persecuted church, is a church that Christ has nothing against. He doesn't say, I have this against you. Just think about if Jesus showed up here and said, I got nothing. Why is the suffering church one about which Jesus has nothing to say? You know why? Because the only people that are left are people that are 100% sold out. It would be interesting to see where churches in America would end up if suddenly to show up was a death warrant. It would really be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Second thing it does is it, it unifies Christians in a way that otherwise we're at each other's throats. Paul writes, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. Persecution advances our mission. Paul writes in Philippians 1 of his own chains, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He goes on and says that the whole household of people that are holding him prisoner have come to faith. But even more than that, he says, others who have seen my suffering are declaring the word of God boldly. Persecution advances the proclamation of the gospel. Case in point, communist China in the late 1940s and early 1950s when Mao Zedong came into power and communism took over and among their goals was to completely eradicate Christianity from their country, killed or sent away all the missionaries that were there, and then China goes dark for three decades. At the time of Mao Zedong coming into power, it was estimated that there were roughly one million Christians in the country of China. 1970s, China begins to open up. You know the story, some of you. When China finally opens up and Christians get a glimpse inside, <laughs> there are 10 million Christians Today there are 40 million Christians. Dave Mawson, our, our history teacher here, told me one of the reasons is that Mao Zedong made Mandarin the common language for China, which had no common language, and it became like the Roman roads and the common Greek language. It became a place for everyone to receive the word of God. It's fair to say that the greatest evangelist for Christianity in the history of the world was Mao Zedong. <laughs> Persecution advances the gospel. I love that. It purifies our teaching. 
I gotta tell you, nothing cleanses the church of these bogus concepts of discipleship than persecution. You can't sit there when you're living in poverty and when you're facing death and imprisonment and say amen to somebody who says, God has called you all to greatness. Step into your prosperity and your health. It just falls apart. You know why? Because it's a lie from hell. Let me tell you how I really feel about that. (laughs) Remember that Christ says to them in their poverty, but you really are rich because you're in his hands. Persecution strengthens our faith. Paul says to Timothy, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And then here's the last one, and this is the big one. Suffering brings glory and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter says about the suffering of the church he's writing to. Let's say this together. If you suffer for being a Christian, do not be ashamed, but rejoice that you can bring glory and honor to the name you bear. I don't know where today impacts you, but I think all of us need to ask where our fear is keeping us from being bolder, more loving, more giving, more outspoken about Jesus. I think we need to ask that question. Because taking up our cross was not a metaphor. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, speak to each of us where we are. Reveal to us those places where our embarrassment, our fear of being outed in our love for you is keeping us from being your vessel to bring the love of Jesus to others. May, May we find a deeper level of commitment to you as we're inspired by those who have made the deepest commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen.